Blog Talk Radio. And I got the HD blues, and my life feels kind of rough. Thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is made possible by an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Katie Jackson, and today we have Mark Yarborough on from UC Davis, California with us. Today we'll be talking about bioethics. So bioethics is really interesting. We all know that we desperately want new treatments and therapies for Huntington's disease, but there's a lot that goes into bringing new treatments and therapies to us. So we have regulatory, which we all know that looks at, you know, safety, tolerability, and efficacy. But with all this new amazing technology out there like stem cell, Casper Chris 9, with all this, these using biologics, it's really exciting times. But there's also ethical kind of boundaries within this or, or, or things that need to be looked at by ethics. So there are these bioethic committees, and um, they really – Today we get to learn more about them. So we are very lucky to have Mark with us today from UC Davis to talk to us a little bit more about bioethics. So thank you so much, Mark, for coming on with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. So let's start out and just can you, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got involved in bioethics? Uh, yeah. My background and training is in philosophy. I... Um, not with going into too much detail, when I was about ready to graduate from college, and I know I didn't gonna, I, I wasn't too interested in working for um, my dad and sort of following in his footsteps uh, in business. I wasn't really cut out for that. I wanted to uh, to look for uh, some practical way to pursue my uh, my interest in uh, philosophy and ethics, and bioethics was just emerging. This was in the late. 1970s and bioethics was just sort of emerging as a as a field of study so I was lucky enough to um, to find a, a good graduate program at the University of Tennessee where I was able to specialize in medical ethics so I, I came to the field through the guise of philosophy other people enter it through medicine nursing the law um, medical anthropology there there are lots of ways you can study bioethics these days but but i i came through the the pathway of philosophy and and ethics yeah so that's my uncle is actually a professor at uh Le Lola Marimont in philosophy so him and i talk mm-hmm. a lot about this this subject and yeah. it's really intriguing to me on his views and takes on on ethics and and things when it comes to the medical field. So um, I find it very interesting. Um, so can you explain to us actually what is bioethics and why did it come about? Yeah, yeah that's um, 
I know we don't we only have so much time so just uh sort of broadly or generally speaking bioethics uh when it sort of um arose as a particular field of study it really uh was just sort of understood to be the study of ethical issues that arise in the life sciences very broadly whether that's agriculture um, or medicine and everything in between, wherever you can apply biological research to try to improve things, whether it's, you know, uh, plant health, uh, food production, or health care, uh, th there are moral dimensions to all of those activities, and that's sort of how bioethics arose. It was sort of a focused study of the ethical issues that are that arise through all of these advances going on in the life sciences. When we uh, tend to talk about bioethics, though, in, in our society, it, it really tends to focus on ethical issues in the medical arena, whether that's biomedical research or healthcare uh, in the clinic. Uh, so, so really, the, those are the two predominant areas of medical uh, of bioethics which is healthcare ethics and uh and research ethics mm -hmm. and we have and uh oh, okay. yeah yeah i was just going to say sorry, Mark, so i didn't mean to interrupt you Oh no, that that's okay. And I was maybe anticipating some of your questions, but um, th so we sort of have two mechanisms in place to help us understand the ethical issues that arise in the clinical setting. Uh, hospitals are going to have hospital ethics committees, and then on the research side, we have IRBs or institutional review boards, which are there to sort of review the ethics of research. Mm -hmm. So both of those have sort of, you know, uh, have a formally recognized role in our society today. Right. And I know this may seem like a very dumb question because we're not, I'm not a scientist and I don't, this is, you know, I'm a patient advocate, but I know the IRBs are mostly in academia. I don't really hear about industry having IRBs. Is that correct? It's only in academia that you're going to have an IRB committee, right? Well, uh, no, actually, there are commercial IRBs, uh, which are oh, somewhat, con yeah, somewhat controversial. But no, any um, any institution that receives federal funding for uh, research on human subjects, they have to have an IRB, and also anybody who wants to apply to the FDA for an investigational uh, new drug application also needs to have their research approved by an IRB. So virtually all clinical research in the U.S. is gonna go through uh, an IRB review process. Okay, so even so, even at an institution is is I, my I guess my I mean industry. My, I guess my big question is: Does industry, when they are conducting science and they're in R and D, do they have bioethics as well involved in theirs? Uh, you know, there um, there are a few biotech companies who have. Um, sponsored in-house bioethics programs. I don't think it's the norm. Okay. I, I think those have been sort of outliers, but uh, th there's certainly, okay. uh, you know, some precedents for, uh, for industry wanting to have a focus in bioethics. Sure, yeah. And then, um, so in, the bi in bioethics, so like some, just to kind of help our listeners understand, so what are like some problems 
that could occur if we didn't have a bioethics committee or what, what kind of stuff can go, you know, we always talk about like maybe mad science or people just having free will to do whatever they want. What are some of those things that you guys talk about? Like well, if we, examples. yeah, if we focus on the role of the IRB and, and the uh, oversight of research, there are really three main things that, that you always want to look at. One is going to be uh, the safety of research participants and have the people who are proposing to do the research, have they done enough to minimize the risk that the people participating in the research are going to be exposed to. We also uh, want to make sure that the uh, potential benefits of doing the research and the benefits to society are going to outweigh the risk that the volunteers might be uh, subjected to in the research. And finally, it's, it's super important to make sure that, there's, that everybody who's going to be participating in the research has an opportunity to give what we call informed consent, which I'm sure folks are familiar with. But basically, you know, the pe people are given uh, the information they need so that they can make smart decisions for themselves about whether or not they want to participate in research. Uh, so so mm -hmm. that's sort of the, the overall task of an IRB is to is to help us sort of. Uh, demonstrate both to research participants but also society more broadly that we are conducting research according to the professional responsibilities and societal expectations that, that there are for mm -hmm. research today. Mm -hmm. So I know that with all these steps um, going on with, with regulatory and, and, and IRBs and all this, there, there's sometimes friction maybe a little bit between patients and families that are desperately wanting something for for their loved ones and maybe even researchers. Um, mm -hmm. so, so with that kind of friction going on, can you please explain to us like why bioethics are, are so important and, and that families shouldn't feel threatened by bioethics or regulatory because it's, you know. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I think it's important for people to, uh, to take a broader you know, or at least appreciate that there is a societal level perspective uh, that we need to be very sensitive to. Uh, there are, uh, you know, broad expectations that science is supposed to be, you know, that there's a good way to do science and there's a bad way to do science. Uh, and mm -hmm. IRBs are there to try to tip the scales in favor of making sure that we do science the right way, the responsible way. Um, and that by necessity, you know, it sort of slows things down. It's going to perhaps uh, take certain options off the table, although that doesn't really, I think in reality, that doesn't happen very often. I think, you know, most research ends up being approved. Uh, it just takes longer, perhaps, to uh, to get underway than, than a lot of uh, people uh, in affected communities um, you know, would wish uh, that that it might start sooner. Also, the same is certainly true for for many investigators. Right? There's uh, there's a lot of paperwork involved. There's a lot of uh, delays. But uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's how we try to strike the balance 
between trying to do something good, but also doing it in a uh, in an ethically responsible way. And and by that I mean a way that's going to be safe enough, a way that treats people with the amount of dignity and respect that that's that's their due uh, when they're making themselves available as an object of scientific study. Uh, I you know I I think it's also important for communities like the HD uh, community to keep in mind that. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that uh, that there's going to be any benefit from doing research. In fact, mm-hmm. we go, mm-hmm. going into it, we know just the opposite, right? Most of the time, things don't right. work, uh, and since there can be significant risk uh, involved, we want to make sure that there's sufficient reason to take those risks, and mm-hmm. and those reasons Absolutely. have to be sufficient for the entire society, not just the people who are going to be subjected to the risks. And I think maybe that's yeah. where uh, some of the frustration comes from, right, is that uh, if you're an affected person, um, you know, you may think, well, it's really just between me and my physician who's conducting a clinical trial. But actually the entire community is sitting around the same table, uh, and and, and mm-hmm. every player has uh, has have different interests and rights at stake. So really, we need to balance all of those, uh, and that's why mm-hmm. we have IRBs is to try to strike that balance. Mm-hmm. I know that um, I was able to go to a, a a meeting at UC Davis, and and I and I forget his name. You had a there was a really amazing reporter there that did reports on stem cell clinics. Um, mm-hmm. I yeah, I think he was spoke. from San Diego, I believe. I'm not going to remember his name either. Yeah, yeah, it was he was from some news news <clears throat> station in in San in San Diego, and mm-hmm. he, he spoke and he showed video of these stem cell clinics and and these people. It just I think that's what really opened my eyes how important this kind of stuff is because I, I am one that I have a husband with Huntington's and children at risk and I want therapies and treatments now. Um, mm-hmm. But then I also realized that that meeting that, oh my goodness, like I saw the one guy that he got, he went to a stem cell, he spent a you know clinic, he spent so much money and his resources and time and he ended up coming out worse um, than yeah. when he went mm-hmm. in and, and, you know, yeah, as I recall, he had a tumor on his spinal column. Yeah, and he was—he didn't—he wasn't in severe pain prior, but then after going to the stem cell, then now he's in incredible pain. Um, mm-hmm. So, watching these 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 stories, um, not only is it you know do do people have the opportunity if there isn't regulatory and different things watching over science, people have the the opportunity of taking severe advantage of people financially. Right mm-hmm. with their, you know, and then also they have the potential of hurting people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, a lot of stem cell clinics are a perfect example as to why this is important. Just to reinforce what you were saying, mm-hmm. you know, their people are, you don't have the independent review that IRBs provide. So people are, you know, they're desperate. Uh, They don't see themselves as having very many good choices, so they end up accessing uh, interventions. I I hesitate to call them treatments. Interventions Mm -hmm. that lack any strong body of science uh, supporting them, right, and uh, Mm -hmm. and probably not a very 
what we would call an adequate informed consent process. Uh, people probably have no idea that the science is so weak. Um, number one. Number two, they're not aware of the risk and arguably the people providing the procedures uh, don't know what the risks are either. And, and there's a silence about all of that. Plus the fact that you're offering something for payment, right? There's the suggestion that it must be valuable, right? Why, otherwise, why would you be charging me so much? Um, so right. I, I think that's a perfect illustration as to when you take away independent review and oversight, which is what an IRB is all about, then you have um, accessing unproven um, and potentially dangerous interventions uh, with virtually no prospect of any kind of benefit. Yeah, it's, it could, could be very scary. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And there are people out there that will prey on people's desperation, and and so these. The great thing is the science that's coming out of um, these universities. When you know when it's found to be you know safe and tolerable, mm -hmm. we know it has gone through a a, a very you know a very uh, um, it, it's had to go through a lot to be proven to be that. Yeah. So um, mm -hmm. and I think that's very important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so you talked about paperwork and stuff. So kind of can you tell me like what what the relationship and how the process works with your kind with your guys's committee IRB committees ethic committees with the the researchers themselves kind of how does that relationship work throughout the process yeah it's well it's sort of a a very formalized and bureaucratic uh process on the one hand and by that i mean that that an IRB is, you know, to to look at a proposed study, uh, the investigator has to prepare a very exhaustive application, an awful lot of paperwork that covers the background science that's been done, uh, that that talks about what the question is that a clinical trial is designed to answer, and also information as to why it's important to do the study as well as uh, the, in, uh, the full description or, or the informed consent form that's going to be provided to people, as well as the process for, for conveying that information and answering. Suppose, uh, um, th also, there's a responsibility to not just to put a piece of paper in front of people and ask them to sign it, but to have a very thorough conversation with individuals mm -hmm. about the proposed study. So there's also has to be a description of what that communication process looks like. And, and that, so the IRB reviews that paperwork. Um, and then if they have questions, need additional information, then they ask for it. And, uh, and then eventually once they feel like they have enough information, they decide whether or not they're going to approve the study. So it's very much a kind of, um, you know, paper-driven process. Um, sure. th and that I think is is a source of some of the uh, the frustration and delay, right? Is that it's a lot of work to uh, prepare an application, and then you know from the committee's point of view, it takes a lot of time to um, you know they don't meet every day, uh, and there's an awful lot of things they need to review, and they only have you know so much time. So, uh, so as a result, it ends up being a, uh, a drawn-out process. 
Yeah, and so if there like if there is a um, a clinical trial that has it's a multi-site clinical trial. So you have one at UC Davis, one at UCSF, one at UCD, mm-hmm. USC. Does, they all have their own individual IRB committees, right? It's not just one committee. They have to actually go through. Everyone's going to go through their own process. Yeah. Yeah, okay. historically, yeah, everybody has to have their own committee, although that's being that's currently being changed. Here within the University of California system, we now have a system where like if uh if there's a study at all five of the UC medical schools and UC Davis IRB approves the study, then the IRBs at all the other UC campuses can rely upon the UC Davis IRB approval. Uh, And NIH is trying to do the same with their multi-site studies, although that's, you know, it's not the norm yet, but things are moving in that direction. So I know we only have so much time, but, you know, but there's some controversy as to whether or not that's appropriate. It certainly uh, can eliminate a lot of unnecessary oversight on the one hand, but on the other hand, let's say you have a clinical trial with a particularly risky procedure, some kind of um, sensitive surgery, let's say, um, and it's going to be done at 20 different sites, um, and I'm an IRB member at UC Davis who recognizes that there's going to be a hospital, I don't know, let's say in New Orleans where people are going to be enrolling. We don't know anything about the surgeons, right, in New Orleans and whether or not they have the training to do this kind of procedure. Um, You lose that kind of on-the-ground expertise if you only have one IRB reviewing for all sides. So it's, you know, it's a trade-off either way. so that that's why it's it's always been controversial. As long as we've had IRBs, uh, we've wondered whether or not uh, having a separate IRB at each site doing research is the smart way to go or not. Right. And I'm going to ask a hard question, um, and this is okay. just something with HD that, that we get because we do have a juvenile form of HD. Um, and we all know that there's so many, so much... Uh, to go through to try to get our kids in any type of of research mm-hmm. or even getting research on the bench for them because of all the restrictions. And that's really disappointing for a parent watching their child go through JHS. Sure, yeah. So horrific. So is there different per, different a different process when you're talking, or even maybe different committees when you're talking about pediatrics? Uh, it's a different process. Well, uh no, it's usually the same committee uh, or the same type of committee, uh, although sometimes, like, um, we don't have it here, but I've been in institutions, and certainly there are lots like this, where they will have an IRB that looks at nothing but pediatric protocols, just because the issues can be different for children compared to adults. Uh, other IRBs, you know, uh, look at both adult and pediatric uh, clinical trials. But the biggest difference, you know, with children, especially young children, is that you have someone else, even though it's a parent normally, but you have another person deciding that it's okay to impose risks on an individual for in exchange for unknown benefits or possibly, you know, very very few or no benefits it's a, if it's a very early trial that's only going to be looking at safety at the safety of something 
right? We don't um, – I can't compel you, Katie, right, as, as an adult to subject yourself to risk that might help somebody else, right? That's your voluntary decision that you get to make for yourself. Uh, children mm-hmm. obviously can't make that decision for themselves, either intellectually or legally, so you know sort of what there's there's sort of a basic ethical question there uh what gives and who gives one person the right to make those kinds of decisions for another person and that's one reason it's not the only reason but it's one reason that uh that experimentation with children is so can be not only complicated but controversial uh, because we, at the end of the day, we end up uh, requiring things of children that we don't require from adults. Uh, and, and here I'm speaking mm-hmm. mainly about very earlier phase one trials that are designed sure. mainly to look at safety, right? And, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. we can't get to more therapeutic trials unless we start with the phase one safety trials. And those mm-hmm. get super challenging when we're talking about uh, including young children in those kinds of trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and part of me, yeah, it's it's just such, it's so hard when it comes to that, right? Because, you know, I've, I learned about coercion and what that means to coerce somebody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we talk about that, right, with Huntington's and caregivers. Yeah. Them and and um, but yeah, children are are hard and and but you know it's it, as parents are going to say, well, where are we going? We have to go somewhere, or else we're never going to have treatments for these kids, you know. Yeah. So um, I'm, that's a really hard hard one, I'm sure, pediatrics because yeah, it's, it's and, so hard watching children. Yeah. Yeah, but it it also and you know and since you you brought up the HD community, I mean obviously that that's uh, you know the the show is is targeted at the HD community, but I I think there's another way we could think about all the things that we have been talking about thus far, and and I should preface my comment by saying you know this is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, for all kinds of primarily legal reasons. But if you, there is another way that we could imagine the oversight and regulation of research, and that is to, uh, to focus on relationships and communities and people working closely together. Uh, you know, let's say the HD community and the the people doing research on HD to decide for themselves, right? How do we want to uh, to approach these very very challenging questions, and uh, and what do we want to do about the risk, the, the fact that you know some of us are going to have to sacrifice ourselves or our children's to help move the field forward and by sacrifice i mean you know some of us are going to be uh, will have to be willing to undergo risk in or, in order to see if we might learn if something works or not um i mention that as a possibility just because it's it's my firm belief and there's even some research in the alzheimer's disease community to suggest this and that is, and it's not going to be any surprise to you or your listeners, 
but within the communities that are burdened by really horrible diseases, there is much more willingness to take on risk than society at large thinks is appropriate. Uh, yeah. you, you, you know, people think that IRBs are are much more protective than they should be. Um, and if you believe that, I think that, you know, trying to find a way to create sort of smaller communities where people could negotiate these things among themselves on a collective basis as opposed to uh, sort of the the much more arm's length distance that traditional IRB approaches take. Um, but, you know, unless you adopt that kind of system, I don't see – uh, I don't see the landscape changing very much, uh, and it would yeah. be hugely and difficult to adopt this kind of system I'm, I'm describing. Yes, of course, and but I do see like there has been a, a big change just in the 12 years I've been doing advocacy work is that the the patient's voice has actually mm-hmm. been playing a larger role than it ever has. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's so critical. I definitely even with regulatory FDA. Um, even in the science field, I mean, even the scientists that want to sit and talk to us, um, that's, that, that's becoming more and more prominent when, when it wasn't when I first started. And, and it's not like I've been doing mm-hmm. this that long. So I, yeah. I do think that people are listening, NIH, FDA, you know, different these places, people are listening, and committees, different committees. Like Sharon just got to go to Germany um, with, with you guys, with um for the conference that you guys just attended, and she mm-hmm. was able to be a patient voice there. Mm-hmm. But to have patient voices there, I think, are so important and um, because no one understands like we do, right, um, like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially something yeah, like Huntington's disease that you can't even imagine, you know, these long-term, um, very long-suffering, very long, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. So, um, you know, I, I think, like, no one really gets it unless you live it, right? So it's great having yeah, a patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, you're supposed to have that perspective on IRBs, but the fact of the matter is, there, you know, you only have one or two people from the community, and there's no way, you know, that they can be uh, knowledgeable about all the different diseases that are being studied uh, at any point in time. And um, so I, I think that's a real limitation of the current system is that, you know, a committee – by necessity, right, only is going to know so much. And uh, mm-hmm. and you may not even have enough scientific expertise on an IRB, let alone uh, familiarity with the communities who are affected by the diseases that you're studying. So I would encourage, you know, I mean, uh, obviously the HD community is already very, very much uh, involved in advocacy, but, you know, there are... Um, Lots of IRBs uh, spread across the country, and uh, and there's an opportunity for people to uh, to volunteer their their service on those IRBs. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't yeah. I didn't realize that you were. It's definitely something that if we can bring a voice to to some of these IRBs and let them know, that would be great. I I, I think you know um, I've been involved in a couple of clinical trials and going through, and I also interview a lot of people that are uh, have IRB, you know, have gone through the IRB process to get their research going into clinical trial. And it doesn't seem like 
they're they're incredibly frustrated with the process. It just seems like it's a little bit time consuming, but and there's mm-hmm. definitely restrictions to protect the patient. So um, so I think that's you know, but I, I haven't seen anyone that goes, oh, well, these IRBs are making it so no research is going through. I haven't <laughs> heard that, but yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard that yet. But um, but I definitely think that if if we can help in any way. Uh, let these committees understand kind of what we're what we're living at home and and what our needs are. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that um, you know, it reminds me that uh, a big challenge in ethics uh, is making sure you've got the right people sitting around the table to deliberate about these really complicated questions. I always like to think that the job of ethics is to join power and wisdom. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's frequently the case that people who have power don't have wisdom and people who have wisdom don't have power. Uh, And the job of Mm -hmm. ethics is to try to get those people, you know, all those people in the same room together at the same time. Um, and and there's an awful lot of uh, wisdom in the patient community that doesn't necessarily spill over into the research community. So you know, the more you can do to uh, to be an equal voice at the, not just a voice at the table, but an equal voice, uh, the, the it's really critical that that you do that. And it you know. And in order to reach that point where you're an equal voice at the table, people have to be willing to invest a lot of time in building relationships and, you know, and sticking with yeah. processes that, that may sound challenging at the outset. And yeah. uh, I, I'm sure you've noticed that in, in your own advocacy work. Uh, you probably, you know, feel like you're a more effective advocate with some people today than when you first started working with them. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for coming um, and talking to us. See, I learned something today. I went into this show thinking we're talking about bioethics, and then he brings up IRB, and I went, of course, it's IRB. You know, I didn't even think about that going into the show. So um, this has been really exciting to me to, to talk to you today because we've been talking about IRBs forever, but just not a, almost at a scale that we don't really know what that means. So. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, oh, we need IRB approval. Well, we all say that, but we don't really know what that means. So so thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to us. And, and thank you for the work uh, you're doing. UC Davis's Health for HDs, you know, we love everyone over there. You guys, everyone over there is so amazing. And, and I feel lucky yeah, that I'm, I get to live in Sacramento. Uh, yeah, well, I'm huge fans of Dr. Wheelock and Dr. Nolta and so many other people here at Davis. So it's just it's a real privilege to be able to work with them on the, the small basis that I'm able to. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on with us today and uh, spending this time with us. And go get some sleep. Uh, Mark has been flying all over. He's been in U.K. and Asia and all over the place. So welcome home and get some sleep. Okay. And, um, well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing the show. And um, until uh, next week, you guys, everyone have a safe week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, kids. We got T-Mobile's unlimited family plan with Netflix included, so... Our New Year's resolution is to not spoil your shows since we can watch our own shows on our phones, tablets, or TV. 
good. Get four lines for just 40 bucks each per month with auto pay, taxes and fees included, and a Netflix subscription on us. So you can watch your favorite movies and shows. Only with T-Mobile. Video streams at 480p. A small fraction of customers using over 50 gigs per month may notice reduced speeds. Netflix for two screens included. Terms apply. Price includes sales tax. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.